On today's episode of Still Processing, a 76ers podcast, Justin Crosby and I sit down and discuss the Pascal Siakam blockbuster trade to the Indiana Pacers. And we also take a look at the Sixers' recent homestand against several Western Conference teams. All that and more on today's episode of Still Processing, a 76ers podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode, the return of Still Processing a 76ers Podcast. I'm your host here, Zach Chavalelli, here as always with my co-host, my man, Justin Crosby. Justin, how you doing today? Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. I feel like Mace, welcome back. Absolutely, absolutely. And what a time to be back. Not only are the Sixers on their uh, lovely little home streak, uh, winning streak here, but on top of that, we have some real nice trade news to talk to talk about today. Uh, Pascal Siakam, long thought to be a target of the Philadelphia 76ers. I guess you could say still potentially a target of the Philadelphia 76ers come the offseason. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Uh, he's found a new team after weeks and weeks and months of speculation that, you know, teams are coming close to a deal with Toronto and Toronto wants X, Y, and Z and the same old regurgitated story again and again and again. Pascal Siakam has finally at long last been dealt and we can move on with our lives at least until the summer. So uh, the big news obviously came out earlier today, that being Wednesday, January 17th. Uh, Sham Sharania reported that, and really I guess you could say it started yesterday on Tuesday because Shams reported that the two teams were close. Not quite there, but but pretty close. Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty close. And the formation of the deal was based around Bruce Brown, veteran Bruce Brown, huge part of the Denver Nuggets championship last season, and three first-round picks for Pascal Siakam. Now, after word came out of what the full entire deal was, turned out that it was a three-team deal. Bruce Brown, three first-round picks. Justin, I'll, uh, we'll talk about the breakdown in just a second on what those were. Jordan Wara going from Indiana to Toronto. Kira Lewis going from the Pelicans to Toronto. A second-round pick joining Pascal Siakam in Indiana. And now back to those third uh, three first-round picks. Two 2024 first-round picks from the Pacers. And another 2026 first-round pick from the Pacers as well. Now... Three first-round picks. Before we get into the expectation from all of these picks and uh, what these picks actually are, because not all picks are created equally. We we do know that. Three first-round picks and a key veteran role player for Pascal Siakam, who has made it painfully clear to any and all teams that consider trading for him that he will not be signing an extension and will test free agency. Justin, what are your immediate thoughts after the trade? A couple things. First, it's about time. Musai uh, Ujiri has been notorious for being a pump faker when it comes to trades. So the fact they actually traded OG and then two weeks later, I think it's been two weeks, maybe a little bit more, 
Um, he traded Pascal. It's about time. But initial reaction, I can't quite figure out. Well, first, good for Indiana. They got what they were looking for. They've been talking about looking for a forward for a long time, a forward that can play, have some playmaking ability, some scoring ability. It's about time they got that. Did they give up a lot for him? Maybe, especially because he he didn't, you know, he did, he's not going to sign an extension. He's going to test free agency. Um, but, I mean, they went for it. Indiana feels like they can, you know, jump up in the – right now they're probably in the, I don't know, third tier in the East, if you want to say that. They feel like they could probably jump up to the second tier maybe with this move. Um, and they, they want to capitalize right now where they have – Miles Turner's still there. Halliburton's on the rise. He was injured right now, and they still were able to keep their young guys, specifically um, Jairus Walker and um, Benedict Matherin. So it's like it's a it's a win win for them if they want to try to compete, you know, as as best they can. Um, but I don't know from a Sixer standpoint, like if they were really interested in Pascal, I mean, there's been reports back and forth on whether they they were or they weren't. But I think in the grand scheme of things, like Pascal was the best fit for the six. I mean, the best talent that they could get. They wanted to trade from, but not the best fit with Joel Embiid and possibly Tobias Harris, depending on what the deal took. So, you know, ultimately I think, you know, it just gives the Sixers another hump to get over in the first or second round. Cause I do feel like it's destined for a Sixers Pacers series in the first round, I just feel it in my bones. So I think having, you know, Pascal yelling and calling for fouls and falling all the time is going to be annoying. But ultimately, I think the Pacers got what they want. Hopefully he resigns if he does. I mean, that's that's a solid core, Pascal and, and Halliburton to try to build over, and then you go from there. Yeah, so with Indiana, they're – have been reports well over a year dating back that they were looking for uh, forwards to target, preferably power forwards, preferably two-way guys. Uh, There have been rumors of names like Tobias Harris, so on and so forth. Pascal Siakam obviously has been linked to them early and often for uh, most of that time. And Siakam, for his many talents, I think at any stop, and you kind of touched on this as far as the Sixers, at any stop he's at, I think that he's going to be a somewhat clunky fit in certain ways just because he's kind of a, a clunky player, even though he's clearly very talented. Uh, it's it's similar, and this is I don't want this to come off as insulting, similar-ish in a way to Julius Randle, although I think that he's much closer to a contributing winning player than Julius Randle is. Uh, so with that being said, like there's – on the surface kind of questions, you know, you think about his, uh, his poor shooting track record. That's how something like something that's not really going to be a great fit in Indiana, but perhaps alongside Tyrese Halliburton, you're looking at cleaner, better opportunities. He can potentially improve in that area. You have to think about what the Pascal Siakam effect is going to have on some of these other players. Miles Turner is going to be able to play a lot more open from range because you're going to have Siakam who's able to, really kind of work that middle of the floor, work even the pain area some. Buddy Heald is someone who I think is going to uh, see a lot of success because of this. He's going to get an influx of minutes from Bruce Brown. He's going to have that opportunity. He's going to have another player who can distract 
from the perimeter, giving him more and more open shots. And Siakam can pass as well. So uh, really, I, I, I don't think they're going to straight go ahead and, and try and work a two-man game similar to how the Sixers have with Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey. And I don't think that Pascal Siakam and Buddy Heald are capable of replicating that exactly. But we've seen that same iteration of that two-man game with a lot of different players, Embiid and J.J. Redick, Embiid and Seth Curry. And do I think they could get on that Embiid-Curry-ish kind of level? Possibly something close to it, but it's going to take a lot of commitment from both players because Buddy Heald is, is not as comfortable with the ball as Seth Curry was. Pascal Siakam is just not as talented as Joel Embiid was. But there is the potential for that going forward. And if they can unlock that in this short time ahead of this postseason push, alongside Tyrese Halliburton, Miles Turner, uh, Benedict Matherin has been fantastic this season as well. And uh, that, yeah, it's it's kind of a, I, I don't know that I'm ready to call them a contender. I don't think they're quite there yet. But this is a team that is going to push back a lot on where they play. And then you're talking about a Sixers-Pacers matchup in the first round. Sounds like a 4-5 matchup. Uh, but I, I really think that, well, just thinking about how that's going to land, unless you think the Pacers are going to be the sixth seed, because I think this move launches them into that, at worst, fifth seed spot. So yeah, I was looking when at we talk six. about how this sets up, I'm thinking, and as much as I want to see Indiana-Boston, or, or rather Indiana-Milwaukee, I think that's what everybody wants to see. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. thinking about Indiana-Boston round two, and I'm just thinking about what a great series that could be, because thinking about the breakdown, I would say the expectation that I have is for Boston to win the Eastern Conference. From there, it's kind of a crapshoot between Milwaukee and Philadelphia. We'll see. Joel Embiid's health is going to play a huge role in that. So we'll see who finishes that war. But let's give it to Milwaukee for now. Second seed, third seed to to Philadelphia. Fourth seed probably to the Indiana Pacers after this move. Uh, You know, they've already been a fantastic team in the East, I think largely overcoming what many people were expecting. I definitely think that they can leapfrog both Cleveland and Miami after this. They're only a game back as we stand before the Siakam trade. So uh, that being said, round two, assuming there are no upsets in that first round, you're looking at Milwaukee, Philadelphia in round two, which again is something I would welcome from the Sixers. And you're looking at Boston, Indiana in round two as well, which I just think you can't go wrong however you slice those four matchups. I think that's just... Uh, going to be some great playoff basketball. But when you look at it on the surface, Bruce Brown, who, and just being clear, is not going to remain a Toronto Raptor for long. He eventually will get rerouted. He can't be aggregated in a trade with another player from Toronto, but he can still be moved. He's a talented player. Losing him from Indiana, that it does hurt some. Three first-round picks on paper. It does hurt some. And then you break down what the picks that they're trading actually are. And you're you're starting to think, okay, well, you know, really that's not that bad. So how the picks effectively break down is that the the first 2024 pick that Toronto is getting, that's Indiana's own pick. That pick, especially after trading for Pascal Siakam, you're talking about a mid-20s pick right there. That's not the worst to lose there. On top of that, the secondary pick in 2024 is going to be the worst of Utah, Houston, Oklahoma City, or the Clippers. Now, between Oklahoma City and L.A., that's another pick in at least the mid-20s, if not the late-20s, probably more likely than not the late-20s. 
Then you flash forward to 2026. That's another Pacers pick. It does have a light protection, protected one to four. Even still, even if they don't re-sign Pascal Siakam, they have a franchise that they're now building around Tyrese Halliburton. They have rumored plans to potentially target Paul George and bring him back to the franchise if he does not sign an extension in L.A., if Pascal Siakam does not sign uh, an extension in Indianapolis. So, or Indiana, rather, I should say. So either way, this is a franchise with a plan with a young star in place. 2026, I'm not really worried about that pick. So when we talk about all picks not being created equally, and you look at the Philadelphia 76ers and what they likely would have had to include in a deal to land Pascal Siakam, well, we're still talking about matching salary and three first-round picks. But the picks that we're talking about are weighted very differently. You're talking about the 2028 LA Clippers first-round pick, which I'm not saying it's going to be top five. I'm not saying it's it's a repeat of the Kyrie Irving situation. But even still, it's expected to be, based on the age of the current roster and their assets moving forward, it's, it's projected to be an okay pick there. And then on top of that, you have the 2029 pick swap which potentially could be gone as well. Because the Sixers have two picks in 2028, you could have moved 2028 and 29 without uh, violating the sleeping rule. So those two picks, I think you have to consider as good as gone in a Pascal Siakam trade for Philadelphia. They alone are worth more than all three of these picks that Indiana gave up in this deal. So when you look at it from that perspective, this is actually a pretty good deal for Indiana. In that sense, Pascal Siakam is obviously a talented player, has his flaws as most players do, all players do, if we're being honest. Even still, he is quite possibly the best fit that of the available options for what the Pacers were looking for. And they got him in a way that's not more than likely, unless there is some late draft day steal, if there's a unfortunate turn in 2025 that leads to that 2026 pick landing in that five six seven spot this is going to work out pretty well for indiana especially if he resigns with them in the offseason so uh all in all not a bad deal for the pacers a fine deal for toronto at least they finally shipped off a guy before letting him walk away in free agency and they did that with og ananobi like you said too when you look at the the hall as it were for uh, Pascal Siakam and, and for OG and Anobi, where do you think the Raptors kind of made out better in terms of those two deals? Which one do you think was the, the better haul for Toronto? Honestly, I mean, the, the picks matter. Um, and I mean, like we say, everything's weighted, but they still have extra picks that they can flip to try to do something else. But I really, really like Emmanuel quickly. And I feel like them getting that young guard handing the keys from the stopgap and Dennis Schroeder to the guy who's going to basically be their future point guard. And then having RJ locked up, I mean, I guess Scotty can, you know, be the point guard too, but just having a, a young core locked up and like, yo, let's see what happens. And I think that's more what they wanted. And I think from that standpoint, Bruce Brown, like you said, I mean, he fits kind of what the Raptors do already, just like a tweener who – can do a lot of things and affect the game two ways, can play, make, can do whatever. But like you said, they can still look and say, hey, we can flip him too and get another first-round pick, and then we make out with four first-rounders and a second-rounder, and 
maybe down the line, you know, we say, or it's a guy under contract for two more years or three more years, and he may not necessarily feel like Toronto's on his list, but we have the assets to go get him. So I do feel like, you know, I think they may better off in the OG of the simple strength that you know that RJ and Quickly are really – like they're solid pay, uh, players, but they're going to be a part of the future. So I do like that. And, and I'm a big fan of Scotty Barnes, so I think it'll be just interesting to see how those three – grow together they do need to get one piece out of there is Jakob Pertl he does not fit with their timeline he does not fit with their style of play please ship him somewhere else but that's it <laughs> yeah it was kind of questionable when they brought in Jakob Pertl in the first place uh and, and he's a talented player but like you said he just doesn't fit what they're trying to do there uh you mentioned <clears throat> Emmanuel quickly who uh, I, I think really was the key to the OG and an OB trade. And he was already having, he was having a quality season for New York, 15 points per game, uh, you know, two and a half assists, two and a half rebounds, shooting just under 40% from three, you know, very good. Uh, small sample size, eight games since the trade, already looking vastly improved in that more open role that he has with the Raptors. He's up to 19 points per game, and this is just over those that eight-game span. So he's averaged 19 points per game with Toronto, five assists, four and a half rebounds. Uh, on top of that, he's shooting an incredible, and this won't hold up throughout the season, 46.9% from three on six attempts per game. So the ability to shoot, which was already for the past three seasons, uh, quite something special from Emmanuel quickly, really his entire career, uh, only becoming even more pronounced in this more pronounced role in Toronto. So uh, they have made it very clear that he will be back with Toronto after this season. Uh, come hell or high water, he will remain a Raptor. And that's great for Toronto. It's great for Raptors fans. They finally have their point guard. Uh, while Scotty can kind of play in that role, it still kind of seems like they're trying to find that baby on his role for him that he can kind of fit in. And and really, when you look at a player like Quickly, if you're trying to build it kind of like the modern-day Bucks, yeah, you can kind of see a vision where you have him in the baby Damian Lillard role, Scotty Barnes in the baby Giannis role, which he, his measurements aren't Giannis. That's that's one of the biggest issues of trying to make him Giannis. But uh, we can talk about that on a whole other podcast a whole other day. And then in addition to that, they have their own Chris Middleton, better known as the Maple Mamba, R.J. Barrett, who uh, I have been very critical of since he came out of the league or came into the league out of Duke. He just has looked disjointed and sloppy. Every, every single season that he's been in the league so far. But now you flash forward to these past eight games with the Toronto Raptors. Again, small sample size. Absolutely get that. That being said, so far, so good for R.G. Barrett in Toronto. Averaging 20 points per game, up from 18. Seven rebounds per game, which has been, I mean, <laughs> there's just something about wings in Toronto. Once they get there, they just, they learn how to rebound. Just like that. Just like it was a lost skill from birth. Uh, three and a half assists, not half bad at all. But what's really improved, and again, this may or may not hold up, is the shooting percentages. 56% from the floor, 44% from three. That's on over four attempts per game from deep. Uh, it's 
definitely a brand new RJ Barrett. Whether he can keep it up, I mean, we're gonna see in time. We'll find out one way or another. But for now, so far, so good. It is by far a career high in terms of true shooting at 65.3 compared to his previous career high, which is 56.1. It's just it's a night and day difference. And and can that hold up? We'll see. Is this a matter of being freed from playing alongside uh, you know, certain players that how do I say this politely? Certain players in New York who do not cultivate a welcoming offensive flow, uh, or even a coaching structure that does not cultivate that offensive flow. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what if RJ Barrett is able to do this over the long haul, but uh, again, you know, for, for the kid who's going home in this trade, he's perhaps been the biggest winner of them all. You know, he, he leaves the scrutiny of New York. He returns home. He's thriving so far. Uh, pretty, pretty good workout for, for RJ Barrett and for the Toronto Raptors. The OG Ananobi deal is looking like a steal for both sides, but Toronto has really played that, that well. And considering that we were talking about getting three first round picks for OG Ananobi this time last year. And how great, again, in theory, that sounds. When you look at the Pascal Siakam trade and getting three first-round picks, yes, it's better than letting your guy go in free agency. But I don't know that Raptors fans would have been quite as happy if they had gotten that similar package with picks projected to go in that similar range over this deal with Emmanuel Quickly and R.J. Barrett. So uh, definitely really interesting. It's going to be very curious to see how this affects the trade landscape for the rest of the NBA, specifically the Philadelphia 76ers, that is one rumored target supposedly off the board for Philadelphia. We've heard so many different things. I was, I was on with Jody Mack just last night on WIP, and he was asking me about what my expectations were for the Sixers at the trade deadline. I was telling him, Jody, there have been so many rumors, reports, and whispers of the Sixers making marginal moves and others of the Sixers star hunting. There is no consensus on this. There is no singular opinion on this. And I think that there are good cases to be made either way. Obviously you do not want to squander what again may seem like the best opportunity for Joel Embiid to lead the Sixers to a championship. But at the same time, you don't want to handcuff the team for a player who's just not worth it because we've seen the Sixers do that again in the past. So before we kind of delve into what the Sixers have actually done on the court, we're inching closer back to being a Sixers podcast after talking about the Raptors and the Pacers for over 20 minutes. But before we get back to what they're doing on the court, Justin, do you have any expectations for this team heading into the trade deadline? What is your opinion on not only what they are going to do, but what they should do in terms of the type of player they should be targeting. I mean, honestly, I feel like they're going to have marginal moves, make two like smaller deals, maybe be able to move a couple seconds and maybe a first or two, like two different, like in separate deals, but a couple of seconds and a, play, a player or two and a, a first and a player or whatever to make some marginal moves to have a more, I guess, well-fitting roster or be able to, you know, take advantage of some of those players who aren't playing like Daniel House or Cork Miles and Cabanos who to get you somebody else who could really help, you know, 
this year. So I think those are the type of moves, but then you just never know with Daryl Morey. And because one, the market is for quote unquote stars, it's not really like right now, it's really um, DeJounte Murray and Zach Levine. And probably both of those guys, the Sixers aren't necessarily interested in. I mean, they're probably more so interested in DeJounte because the contract is better, but I'm sure they don't want to pay whatever Atlanta's asking. So they'll back off until the price gets low enough to where they feel like it's, they could make the commitment. Levine, contract is too high, not happening. So unless another star shakes free, which – you never know because who knows James Hart who knows James Hart is gonna get traded like two weeks before the deadline. You hear rumors and next thing you know it happens. So who knows what's gonna happen? But I just don't think there's necessarily anybody out there they feel really feel like that's gonna move the needle to to sacrifice all their ass their assets to get. Now if they can get DeJounte Murray, who has what four years left or three years left on his deal for you know a couple of players and a first round pick, they'll probably do that. But they're not going to give up three first-round picks where they can turn around and have more assets, you know, in the summer to see what happens, you know, in the summer. So, you know, I expect some marginal moves. Uh, and by marginal, I'm not saying, like, bench warmers. I'm saying not the big na- name. So maybe you can get a um, Bogdanovich from Detroit or maybe you get a DeLon Wright from Washington. Or maybe or Bogdanovich from Atlanta. Yes, that too. Or, you know, some of these other names that you, you may see out there that m- makes sense for them as a secondary ball handler or another spacer, even like a Buddy Hill makes sense, right? One year left on this deal, knockdown shooter. Maybe you, you know, you give a, a second or two seconds and a player for Buddy or two players in a second for Buddy, like stuff like that. I feel like that makes sense. So I think that's more like what we'll see. And I think they're just going to ride. If if the big name doesn't come up, we don't hear a Shams report or official report that, you know, XYV is, Z is available. Then I'll see you, you. You'll see that. And you'll see them kind of say, all right, we've, we've tried this three-star thing. Let's see what Maxi really can do. He's going to get paid regardless, but let's see what he can really do in the playoffs. Joel is playing that good right now that if he can play like this in the postseason, all we need is some consistency from the other guys, and then we can beat anybody. I think that's how they truly feel. I think when they go into the matchup, Boston is clearly far the best team in the league. But they say to themselves, we go into that series with the best player in the world and nobody that can guard you know, our guy. And when you have that type of confidence, you know, maybe you do that. The Nuggets just won a championship with Jamal Murray and just Jokic. Like, so maybe they say, okay, let's try it this way. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm keeping my eyes peeled on things. So, but they will, they will do something. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the one thing that you just know is that they won't be stagnant. Uh, that I think would be the greatest surprise is if the Sixers went through the deadline and did not do anything. It's just a matter of what are they going to do now. There are whispers. Uh, you mentioned what the asking price is for Dejounte Murray. There's been word that it's two first-round picks. Again, what type of picks are we talking about? Would something such as the Oklahoma City Thunder pick that the Sixers owe, which would be the worst of either OKC, Houston, or the Clippers in 2026, does that count as one of those two first-round picks? And then could you then trade the Sixers' 2028 first-round pick 
does that qualify for it, or do you need to do the 2028 Clippers pick and the 2029 first-round pick swap with the Clippers as well? And then from there, what else do you have to add? Are they looking for young players added in? Are they just looking for matching salary? Are they looking for a contributing veteran? What exactly are they looking for? And then you also have to consider the fit. And I think that's one thing that a lot of teams have been a little bit wary on as far as DeJounte Murray is concerned, is that he has... It's very clear that Atlanta is over this relationship between Trey Young and DeJounte Murray. And it doesn't necessarily seem like it's an attitude kind of thing. It seems much more like it's just these two guys are not working out. So you have to figure out, well, why is DeJounte Murray not working out? Is it because he's truly a point guard playing off guard to a guy who refuses to shoot off the catch and Trey Young? I mean, that's pretty pretty possible if we're going to be honest about it. But as we're not overly analyzing Trey Young at the moment for whatever reason, uh, DeJounte Murray... Is he better with the ball in his hands? Absolutely. Is he going to have the ball in his hands all the time in Philadelphia? No, he's not. Tyrese Maxey is still going to be that de facto ball handler, although Murray would be able to take on that role as that secondary ball handler. Himself as a catch-and-shoot specialist, it's you know you use the term specialist a little loosely. It's not a perfectly clean fit. And so when you look at you know do we give up not even just three first-round picks, but do we give up two of our top quality assets for DeJounte Murray when potentially even as early as this, this offseason, you never know when a Donovan Mitchell is going to be available. Not that I love the fit of Mitchell and, and Max together, but that's just a supremely talented player right there. You never know, and again, there's recent reports that the Brooklyn Nets turned down four first-round picks for Michael Bridges, which who knows how many of those are pick swaps, who knows how many of those are Fugazi picks, who knows. Uh, but you never know when a Michael Bridges is going to be available. And and if it comes to the point where Michael Bridges says, hey, I kind of want to go home. I get it. He's close enough right now. But you can't ever rule that out. I'm just saying. I'm not I'm not reporting anything. But, you know, that's just the, the hope that Sixers fans have against hope. But you never know when some of these guys are going to become available. And I don't mean the Zach Levines of the world who the Chicago Bulls are just waiting for the opportunity to get rid of him. You know, we're we're talking about the Lori Marketings of the world where, you know, maybe there is actually a situation where Danny Ainge uh is is willing to give him up without asking for one of the other team's untouchables, which has been that rumor and that report there. Uh there are so many potential players that could potentially you know, again, the word is potential, but if Phoenix ends up falling back into a crater, and we've seen the recent ascension, they had an incredible 22-point comeback last night, uh, but they definitely seem like a team that has just a bunch of loose gunpowder surrounding them at all times. What's going to happen there? And at that point, what happens with Kevin Durant? What happens with Devin Booker, if we're being honest? These are the things that we don't know. And not knowing, it really means that you have to be very careful when you commit so heavily to to giving up your assets and we've seen the Sixers miss out on these opportunities in the past because they've involved themselves in the Tobias Harris acquisition because they involved themselves in trading away Al Horford and getting off of that bad contract because they found themselves in these situations where they've had to sacrifice these picks because they've shot themselves in the foot and acted like second round picks just flat out didn't matter whether that was uh, you know, just adding them into deals unnecessarily, whether that was uh, really 
<laughs> losing all of these second round picks that they've lost recently in, in uh, early negotiations with free agents, whatever the case may be, you know, these penalties that the teams received, there's just been uh, a, a lack of care around protecting those assets in the past. And it seems like the organization has finally wised up and uh, is, is really trying to make a dedicated change and turn from that. So we'll see what they do with the deadline. I would say probably more realistically, you're looking at targets like a Bruce Brown, who Sixers Adam, as he's affectionately known, Adam Aronson of Philly Voice, I believe was the first I saw to throw that idea out there of targeting Bruce Brown of the, from now the Toronto Raptors. I think a guy like Alex Caruso is another guy that makes sense. He's been linked by uh, everybody who's ever watched basketball has linked Alex Caruso to some contender because he's just that damn he's that damn good and he's the kind of guy that every contender would always want. Uh, but I think those are some of the moves you're looking at potentially a Royce O'Neal or a Dorian Finney-Smith from Brooklyn. Uh, there's names in that kind of middle of the pack, kind of like you were saying, Justin, that kind of more marginal move where they can make an impact, they can make a difference, but you're not getting that third or fourth star as many people may have been expecting or even in some cases demanding that the Sixers do because they have this opportunity, which is not quite the opportunity that people believe that it is. So uh, it, there's still a long way to go before the trade deadline. Uh, actually, wow, this is, we're, we're, we're getting actually pretty close now. It's, it's under a month until that trade deadline. We are really zooming up. That's, this year's already flying by. Still, we have three weeks until the trade deadline. Still some time before then to see how this is going to move, how this is going to shake. I do believe they're going to wait a lot closer to the actual deadline than say making a move right now. That just seems to be more Daryl Morey's MO. On top of that, it, it it's a great time to strike just because you have more information. And that's one thing that's been very clear about Daryl Morey's approach. Knowledge is power. So we're going to likely see a little bit more smoke gaining traction the closer this gets to the deadline. But for now, the focus around the Philadelphia 76ers has been there on the court play, which has been absolutely fantastic over these last three games, two of which have been among the greatest back-to-back stretch of Joel Embiid's career. So we're going to break into this three-game stretch right now, all three at home, all three against Western Conference teams, and impressive in their own way. Sacramento Kings, no slouches. The Houston Rockets, one of the top defensive teams in the league. And the reigning champion, Denver Nuggets. So 3-0 and against those squads, 2-0 and in the games with Joel Embiid. Back-to-back obliterating efforts, just absolutely dominating by Joel Embiid. 41-point burgers, both games. 40-10, and honestly. 40-10 and rebounds, 41-10 uh, rebounds against the Rockets. 41-10 and assists against the Denver Nuggets. Uh, people love to say that Embiid beat Jokic in his own game. And it was incredible to be down there live for, for both of those games, but especially the Denver game. But just looking at the surface level, that three-game stretch there, what were some of your takeaways, Justin, of what the Sixers showed you in that in that little uh, snippet in those three games there? So, I mean, it's obvious. Like, I don't know. I feel like we don't necessarily have to – and by all means, you can. We don't have to necessarily talk about Embiid's greatness. Like, you know, we we can see what he's done. But I want to call out the Kings game and um, the game against the Nuggets, Tobias Harris' performances. First, 
the uh, performance against Sacramento without Embiid was much needed. They probably don't win that game if he doesn't have 37. Should have had 40, but whatever. But at the end of the day, Tobias was aggressive. He was getting to the hoop. He was dunking the basketball. He was. He, I think he shot like seven or eight threes that night. Like just way more aggressive as he should be, and much needed. Given helping give Tyrese Maxey some cover, like where it's not all on him. Because it feels like a couple of times on the B damn play, especially early on, Tobias is like deferring to Pat Bev and. Marcus Morris and other guys where it's like, no, you're the other guy tonight. Like you have to be the other guy. So that was really good for him to see. And then just kudos to him on that fourth quarter run. He did when Sixers went down five, I think beginning of the fourth quarter against the Nuggets with Embiid on the bench, like Tobias was aggressive against mismatch mismatches. He was taking Christian Brown to the hoop. Like, whoever was guarding him, he was getting a bucket. And it was bucket after bucket after bucket, whatever way you wanted it. Like, that's what you need when your big guy's on the bench. You know he's tired. You know Nurse probably is going to bring him in as soon as Jokic comes in, whether it's nine minutes in or seven minutes in or whatever the case may be. And Tobias helped bring the the team back and get into a tie before the big fella got back in. Those are the moments where – it's like, all right, yo, we're picking your spots. We're on a place for you. Go get a bucket. And he got to his spots, and that's what we need to see more of from Tobias, like more aggressive. Like we know MB has the ball. We know Max has the ball. But when you get your spots or it's your time, we need you to be effective. Like, and I think he's done that the last couple the last couple nights. I, I think the Houston, Houston game, he, he may not have shot that many shots, but I just want to give kudos to Tobias because we always point out when Tobias has, has flaws really – you know, protrude through everything. And the fact that he played well, specifically these two really important games, like he needs kudos for that and it needs to be called out. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And uh, Joel Embiid, one of the first things that he said when he eventually did come out of the locker room after last night's game against the Denver Nuggets was uh, that he wanted to hear about Tobias. And he, he mentioned how quickly uh, people are to – be loud when uh, he is not contributing and how quiet they are when he has been key to victory. A couple quick things about Tobias. So all three of these games, I was down at the center for the Sacramento game. uh, First of all, you're right. Seven threes attempted against the Kings. And that honestly, like six should be the bare minimum with Tobias Harris. It should be six attempts at least every single game from three. That's something that Joel has tried to impress on him. Something that Nick Nurse has tried to impress on him. And over a somewhat recent stretch, he's done better at that. Now, against Denver, listen, it it wasn't part of the offense. He, he finished with four. You can forgive him for that with how that game played out. But uh, in certain matchups, they're just going to need him to be able just to uncork it from three back there. And he did that against Sacramento, and it was absolutely a huge part of the winning effort. Another big factor of it was the defense that he played on Kings big man's Demonis Bonus, which – he was in that man's rib cage the entire night. Sabonis was so frustrated by Tobias Harris, and, and it got physical. It got pretty physical, and you got to give uh, you know big time kudos to, to, to Tobias Harris for hanging in there. Uh, and and he played him like a fiddle, just fantastic. He caused I think it was like it was two or three turnovers on Demonis Sabonis within the first uh, five minutes of the game. Just an incredibly quick impact that he made defensively. And of course he put up 37 points 
on the other end. So the Kings, the kind of big bugaboo on the scouting report has been they can't defend wings with size. Tobias Harris, knowing that, going into it, made sure to make them pay offensively. And then on the other end, Harris even said after the game against Denver that the game against Sacramento was almost a practice for this game against Denver because everyone can look at Demonis Sabonis and Nikola Jokic and see the similarities. No player is Nikola Jokic except for Nikola Jokic, but there are somewhat similarities between Demonis Sabonis, Nikola Jokic, and then much lesser so, even though he is a very talented player, Alperin Shengu, just in the sense of these are, and then you can even add Joel Embiid into that competition as far as big men who can handle. But when you look at Sabonis and Jokic, those comparisons are a lot closer together. Uh, just not, there's a talent gap, obviously, but as far as play style, they're a lot closer together. And so to be able to front Sabonis, to kind of get in his rib, to frustrate him a little bit, to keep him from making the open passes to, you know, De'Aaron Fox, to, to uh, Harrison Barnes, to even Chris Duarte, Malik Monk missed the game, but uh, to, to some of those shooters for Sacramento was absolutely key. And that showed up against the Denver Nuggets. He held Nikola Jokic, and it was a combination of Harris, Batum based on the switch. Joel Embiid picked up Jokic in the fourth quarter. But Tobias Harris was absolutely key in that defensive matchup against Jokic. They held him to three assists. They held Nikola Jokic to three assists. And in a game where Denver scored as many points as they did, that's incredible that only three buckets were assisted off of Nikola Jokic. So to have that kind of impact, obviously Jokic clearly won that rebounding battle. That is going to happen, especially when you do have this kind of matchup on him where you're kind of fronting him with a more undersized defender at the nail. This is what they did with P.J. Tucker. Other teams have done this as well. This is not some original Nick Nurse product that came out, but it doesn't matter. What matters is that they've identified something that can work, and it doesn't lead to domination against the against the Nuggets, but it gives you a chance to win against the, one of the NBA's best teams, and that's exactly what they did. They executed it to perfection. Joel Embiid was absolutely dominant, and he won the fourth quarter, which started with Tobias Harris absolutely kicking ass himself to begin that fourth quarter. It was a terrible end to the third. The Nuggets went on a 12-0 run. The center was deflated, and then out comes the fourth quarter. Joel Embiid's on the bench, and who is carrying this team? Tobias Harris. And I got to be honest, when I saw him rise up for some of these shots, my heart sank because it looked like we were looking at hero ball Toby. But you know what? He made the shots, and that made the difference. And that's what led to this victory. Uh, Tobias Harris set it up, and Joel Embiid knocked it down. And that's what led to this victory against the Denver Nuggets. Now, Tobias Harris absolutely deserves his flowers, but you cannot talk about these past two games and the focal point not being Joel Embiid, who has scored 82 points. 82 points over those past two games. Now, you have the matchup against the Houston Rockets, one of the top defensive teams. I believe there were six in uh, defensive rating entering the night. And I get it. They're not built to, to defend top offensive centers. Even still, it's a top six off uh, defense in the NBA getting absolutely shredded by Joel Embiid. An, an absolutely incredible performance by him. Uh, the only thing was the insistence on putting him in in the fourth quarter to continue to get that 30-10 and 10 streak. When you... 
when you look at how the fourth quarter played out, after all the starters were taken out, yes, the Rockets went on a run. It was not as close as it appeared when Joel went back into the game in the fourth quarter. Now, mind you that he went in and came back out with the same point differential on the board. That being said, it it didn't feel necessary, but it, it didn't cost him an appearance against Denver. So I think there's no reason to, to truly hate on it. And it guaranteed them the win because that was the last thing that you could afford to do was to let one slip late against the Houston Rockets and set you up for failure right before that back-to-back matchup against the Denver Nuggets. So uh, to see him, 41 points, 31 minutes. I mean, he, he was in foul trouble throughout the game, so that kind of preserved his body a bit as well. So you can also, again, forgive those fourth-quarter minutes. But uh, to see him do that and then on the next night go right back at the Denver Nuggets and, and put up another 41-point performance. And I mean, just what a – it was a star performance. It was an MVP doing MVP stuff. You know, there's there's no other real way to put it. The crowd was ooh and aahing. And, uh, you know, he – and it, it, it's incredible really to see both he and Nikola Jokic take the court at the same time. Uh, in, in my opinion, and, I, and I, I say opinion loosely because I think that this is provable by fact – these are the two best players in the NBA, Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid. And depending on who you ask, that answer can flip off. If you ask Joel Embiid, Nikola Jokic is the best player in the league. If you ask Nikola Jokic, he'd probably say Joel Embiid is the best player in the league. That's just how these guys are wired. But these are the top two guys in the NBA. It's been that way for a number of years. To watch these two giants go back to back, and they're not necessarily guarding each other. Like I said, that picked up a little bit more late in game. But just offensively, it's just you're watching these incredible plays one after another after another. And it's this beautiful tennis match that's done in this poetic basketball style. And it's just honestly like I had to sit back for a second and just think about how how lucky everybody in the building was to be able to see these two guys. It's not just about Joel Embiid. It's not just about Nikola Jokic. This is peak basketball. This is a regular season game in January, and I absolutely understand that. But this was a playoff game environment. Not only that, but a potential finals environment. That's how excited this entire crowd was. That's how excited this Sixers team pumped everybody up to be. And the Denver Nuggets were rising up to that challenge and performing as well as they did, even after having whatever flight issues they had. I believe Keith Pompey said it was something like a – nine-hour flight delay or, or whatever it may be. I don't want to misquote him, but he did a good job reporting on what that was. That aside, they rose up to the occasion, and they put on a hell of a show against the Sixers. And it was – Joel Embiid made a point of saying it was not the game of the year for the Sixers. And by that, he was saying that it wasn't their best game played. But it sure as hell was the game of the year for those watching these Sixers games. It was the best spectacle – that the Sixers have been a part of this season. And I think everyone can say this who's hoping to see the Sixers make it to the finals, that that matchup will hopefully be between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Denver Nuggets because that is something that the NBA sorely needs. And the fact that the league does not lean into that matchup, I get it, it's not a rivalry. This isn't Magic and Bird. These are two guys who do not have those type of negative feelings towards each other. Even still, this is the top matchup in the NBA. This is what the NBA should be hoping for. And this is certainly what many Sixers fans are hoping to see as the season progresses into the playoffs and into the finals. But, Justin, I've been rambling on for a while. 
what was your takeaway from the game against the Nuggets? And what can you really say about Joel Embiid at this point? 82 points in two games, back-to-back 40 in 10 games, uh, and really just asserting himself on a national stage against the defending champs. I mean, like I said, it's like, it's just like unbelievable that you're you're watching it and it's just like you talk about him every every game. It's like, it's unbelievable. Like, I was talking to somebody else and I'm like, yo, we cannot take for granted, specifically like even us, right, and all those other people who are covering the team for their respective organizations. Like, we cannot take for granted that we're watching the Joel Embiid era, right? Like from the start to where we are now, like it's it's like this growth has been monumental. And to see it like every night, like it's just crazy. And when you see him like hit those jumpers, like it just seems automatic. The middies just seem automatic. It's like when he misses, you're surprised. And you feel like he misses more bunnies close to the rim than he does mid-range shots. It's just like it's so automatic. He's so locked in. And specifically on nights when he's like really, really patrolling the rim too, like rim protection is like it's crazy. And as far as his performance against Denver, like you knew he was going to get up for this game with Jokic. He, you know when he plays him, he always does. And I, I think that ultimately, it just goes to show that like he can literally, although he had help from you know his co-stars. Like, his presence alone can just determine how a team plays, defense. Like, he can really wreck a whole entire defensive game plan for other team and have others really reap the benefits of that. That's how his good he's gotten. That's how good he's gotten with the trust of his teammates. Like, three years ago, two years ago, some of these passes that he made, he wouldn't pass it because he didn't trust guys. Now he's like, yo, I'm trusting these guys. I'm letting it fly. We're going to live and die by it, and that's how we're going to roll. And – that's how he has to play, and that's how he got 10 assists. Probably could have had more, and that's how he has to continue to play this season. And when it's time for him to pick his spots, when his moments, do your thing. When the two-man game is working, do your thing. But, you know, I was just happy to see him, you know, do that on national TV, specifically as, a, of course, a fan, but, like, covering the squad and watching him. You know, you hear the things online where people talk about, oh, he only does it against bad teams or et cetera, et cetera, and, like, the, you know, to do that against Jokic on national TV was major. And, oh, my God, like, side note for anybody that watched the game, Stan Van Gundy was That's just, oh, my goodness. Like, I couldn't take it. Like, I, I wish I was listening to Kane Allen. Like, it was that bad. Like, it was that bad, Stan Van Gundy. It's like, bro, like, and then, oh, my God, it was just so bad. I'm not even going to get into it. But, yeah, it was good to see him do it against Jokic on national TV. And continue that. And I hope they do. I hope he does play in Denver for the first time in like five years um, in a couple weeks. So they can try to get the win in Denver. And he can say that, you know, I beat him twice and whatever the case may be. And I think those guys are kind of over the the beef back and forth because they're seeing how toxic it gets online in the media in general. Like it gets super toxic. And, you know, I think they see that. So they try to downplay the beef. That's why I feel like Joel said that, like, oh, he's the best player in the world. Because he could have came out and said, well, tonight I proved that I was the best big man in the world. And it's like toxicity all over the, the internet. And instead, he took the high road and gave Jokic his props and, and, and moved on. So 
you yeah. know, it was it was a good game for him. So I'm I'm really looking forward to, you know, the game on the 27th. I believe that's a date, and I hope that if they need to rest him the game before so he's ready, do what you got to do. <laughs> Just make sure he plays in Denver. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's uh, some of the other writers were just spatting out stuff in the media room before the game and and comparisons uh, as far as Embiid were, you know, just being loosely tossed around, nothing overly serious. But, you know, the the whole conversation was centralized around uh, the disrespect that he sometimes receives in the media uh, and, and, there were some, you know, divisive opinions on if it's all from, you know, from the local fan base, if it's from the national media, if it's from everybody, if it's deserved, if it's not deserved, whatever. A lot of back and forth going on. Uh, and and one reporter, uh, this is a private conversation, so I don't want to mention names, but uh, one reporter mentioned the correlation a little bit to Embiid's career trajectory and Dirk Nowitzki. And uh, I, I think that when you look at the you know, quote unquote rivalry between Jokic and Embiid personality wise and only personality wise, I think it much more closely resembles that Duncan Nowitzki than it does the Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. Now, obviously play styles are completely different. Jokic hasn't had the championship level success that Tim Duncan had, obviously a few players have. Uh, But when you really just look at how you have two guys who are, they're competitive and they are constantly trying to do everything that they can to uh, reach that ultimate goal. Uh, and, and they are playing at the top of the entire sport, but you don't see that type of disrespect in, in the media. You know, you're not watching a, a situation where uh, you have guys drawn at each other back and forth. You know, you're not looking at like a Hakeem David Robinson situation uh, where, you know, there's that absolute one-sided dominance either. Uh, you know, this is really a situation where uh, one guy just hasn't really proven it in the postseason yet. One guy has, and they're both pretty cordial. So just really in that sense, it kind of reminds me a lot more of that in terms of the personalities involved. And uh, I kind of think that's, I, I don't mind that as a, as, a, as a break to it. Obviously people love the, you know, the Dr. J, Larry Bird, all that kind of stuff, you know, the throat choke and all that. Uh, I, I do think that it's not a bad thing to have a bit more of respect between, again, the word is rivals, but but just the fellow top players in the NBA. So uh, it's it's definitely interesting. I do really want to see him play in Denver. I feel like he does. He obviously doesn't have to play in Denver, but he kind of has to play in Denver. Really want to see him play there. And 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 if nothing else, because Denver is such a unique environment, and the chances that if the Sixers do make it to the finals, they do play in Denver. I don't want a finals game to be the first time that Embiid's played in Denver like the past five years. You know, you got to get a little bit of an acclimation to, to that atmosphere if you can. Call it scouting, whatever you want. But you got to make sure that you do play in that game if you're Joel Embiid. I don't think there's any question about that. Last time the Sixers played in Denver, Jokic actually hit the game winner over Al Horford and Joel Embiid. That's how long ago it's been. Uh, over who? 
Al Horford and Joel. Al Horford. Oh my goodness. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely time for, for Embiid to <laughs> That's return. how long ago it was. Definitely time for him to return to to Denver to uh is it still the Pepsi Center? Uh whatever they're calling it these uh, days. Maha Arena. No, I don't know. Listen. Yeah. Well, it's time <laughs> to return to Denver. Uh for Ball Arena. For ma- oh, you know what? It might be the ball arena. Uh for a matchup against the Nuggets. Uh Th- this is just what he again has to do to to prepare long term for this matchup. To uh, forget even the national narratives, he's made it perfectly clear. He's been talking a lot about that the past two games, post game, mm-hmm. that he does not necessarily care about the national media. He's talked about how uh, you know certain guys they like to put Joel Embiid's name and stuff, and it leads to a lot of uh, clicks, a lot of likes for them, and everything such as that. Uh, and he he. he he seems a little annoyed by it, but he's not overly interested in it. That's that much is very clear. Uh, it is the ball arena in Denver, which is a huge downgrade from the Pepsi Center. Can I just say? But uh, so Joel Embiid needs to go to that ball arena and he needs to show out against the Denver Nuggets uh, again, just to make sure that he, if for nothing else, if for nothing else, to get that environment on the more familiar side for him. But uh, don't worry about the internet trolls don't worry about the national media members who are creating narratives. He doesn't need to worry about any of that. What he needs to worry about is preparing to win games for the Philadelphia 76ers. And to his credit, that is what he has done. The Sixers organization has spoken about how Embiid has approached these types of games. And he's been very calm, very cool, very focused. And that's the kind of Joel Embiid that we uh, really want to see if this team's going to go far. So, the team now heads off on a road trip Friday and Saturday in Orlando first and then Charlotte against the Hornets. Uh, Orlando, obviously, no slouches, but Joel Embiid hopefully will be playing both of these games. Should be relatively uh, capable to handle. Orlando is is kind of a wild card team this season. They've been certainly a lot better. You never quite know, but again, they don't have anyone to hold off Joel Embiid. Not that anyone really can. He's on pace to win his second MVP, assuming he plays enough games. So uh, we will see what happens with the Sixers after this week. Uh, We will be probably airing our next pod sometime next week after that road trip. And we do have a very exciting announcement. We're not going to get quite into what that is yet, but we will be dropping subtle hints over the next few days. But we are undergoing a very exciting change here at the Still Processing Podcast. And I think that a lot of you are really going to like where this is going, where this podcast is heading. And we're certainly excited about it. But we will be dropping that information ahead of our next pod where we just might have a special, if not permanent, guest going forward. So a lot to look forward to for the Sixers season, a lot to look forward to for the Still Processing Podcast. I, once again, have been Zach Chavalelli here, as always, with my man, Justin Crosby. And listen, Philadelphia, times, it gets tough out there. Okay, we get that right now. The Sixers, everything's going great. We know that's not how it always is. The important (laughs) thing is at the end of the day, at the end of the day, just like those Philadelphia 76ers, just like Justin and I, you are still processing. Have a good night.